What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Monarch is building the future for those interested in one wallet that consolidates the best services and functionality into a simple and easy to use application. The Monarch app and wallet will empower users to control all aspects of their financial kingdom from the palm of their hand. You may have heard the phrase, not your keys, not your crypto. With Monarch, you own your keys and your seed phrase, meaning you own your own crypto. With Monarch, you can store, receive, send, swap, buy, sell, and earn interest on your crypto. You can track your portfolio in the news, and you can check the market cap daily. They're constantly adding new services and updates, and you can learn more today by visiting monarchwallet.com pomp. Again, that's monarchwallet.com pomp, or you can download the wallet for free today from Apple or Google. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I'm here with Steve. We've got a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. He's got a, a super interesting background that is uh, very uh, important and uh, related to crypto. So uh, thank you so much for coming in and uh, doing this. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, all right, let's uh, let's talk all pre-crypto. Um, you've been in and around the securities business for a long time, uh, especially in uh, retail trading since like the 90s. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> explain kind of what you did uh, before you got into this internet magic money. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm the gray hair in the business here. I've uh, been around the uh, the securities business since 1994. Was with a firm uh, that was an institutional trading firm. Uh, we sold it to E-Trade back in 1999, uh, led by uh, uh, Jarrett Lilliet. And we wound up taking over all the brokerage part of E-Trade in a really exciting time. Uh, the time where really you were starting to build on uh, how to make the, the brokerage world efficient and how to make online brokerage efficient and how to grow that business from you know, from the early 2000s. It was a really interesting time. And, and so explain a little bit about what the brokerage business is and how that works in like the legacy uh, financial system. Yeah, I mean, back then, uh, everybody was calling their broker and was paying give or take $150 a trade for a 100 share lot. E-Trade came along in, in as most people know, in the mid 90s. Uh, and by the end of the, the 90s and early 2000s, you know, they kind of took out the broker. And you remember some of those crazy ads that they had, which were a lot of fun. I'd love to see them again. But, uh, you know, it really took out and said, people, go trade online. Uh, we'll get your trade done in, in a really efficient manner and really quickly. And you'll open your account in a really quickly, you know, quick manner. So people started adopting that. And that was the real early stages of, of the mass internet adoption. Mm -hmm. and, and so really the thought process here was you go from paying $150 per trade to uh, much less than that. And sometimes even no trading fees at all. Yeah, back then was still 1999, I think, if I remember mm -hmm. right, which was still a bargain in those days. You know, mm -hmm. now you have some as low as free trading. Mm -hmm. But that was the time where people were like, wow, you know, for a 100 share lot, I don't I could actually trade in and out without the price, you know, having to go 10 points. I can make a little bit of money on a few point move. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't do that before. And that's when all of a sudden people started coming in. 
Uh, you started having the time where people were given, uh, you opened an account, they gave you a couple of thousand dollars to test it and free trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they got you in and you were starting to trade a lot more and it really grew from there. Yeah, it's, it's funny to think about this from like a multi-decade evolution of it used to be $150, then it was like 20 and 20 was a big deal, yeah. right? Then we got it down to 999 and then eventually all, all, all uh, along came this uh, free trading, right? Or, or kind of not actually uh, paying on a per trade basis, which, uh, which is all the rage now. Well, what's interesting about the free trading, and not many people remember this, is sometime, I think, in the late 90s, early 2000s, one of the big online brokers, uh, I think it was Ameritrade, had a, had a sister brand that did free trading. It didn't work. So it didn't work 15 years ago, then all of a sudden now it's back in back in vogue. And, and you know, the trading commissions now are as low as 495 or free in yeah. a lot of cases, but it really went to, you know, 20 to zero. And any idea why it didn't work back then and now it works? Any guesses? I I think mainly it was people were still thinking of you get what you pay for. Mm -hmm. And with zero, they're probably going to take something from me. (laughs) They're Uh, screwing me somehow. Somehow or another, the brokers got to make money, (laughs) right? I mean, because they were still, those brokers were starting the time of going from not making money because every dollar went into marketing, losing billions of dollars. Uh, and then starting to make money. So customers were a little bit fearful of that. I think Mm -hmm. the millennial generation now is like, oh, that's okay, I'll take it for free and I don't really care about what my execution quality is on Mm -hmm. on an equity, especially if I'm trading 10 shares. Yep, that, that makes sense. And so talk to me a little bit about working at E-Trade in the late 90s, early 2000s. Like you get to see the big bull run and the, and the boom and then you get to see the bust as well. Any takeaways from that? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, other than uh, you should have sold kind of like early oh, 2000. Uh, I got kind of lucky. Uh, my team and I, when we left, uh, and I left in 2006 and started a company called Lightspeed Financial. That was a buyout, management buyout out of E-Trade. Uh, we left, I was telling someone this story today. When we left, you know, the stock price pretty much topped. And so we exercised, uh, all of us got lucky enough that our options were in the money and we exercised at tops. And mm-hmm. then shortly after that, that was 06, 07 was when the real bust happened when mm-hmm. E-Trade, you know, uh, got caught with all the, the CDOs and all of a sudden mm-hmm. their stock price crumbled. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from the time from 99 to 06 when I was there, it was acquisition mode, go buy things that filled in in gaps, go buy a market maker, which I did for them, uh, go buy Canada back, which I did for them, uh, go buy a day trading firm and really try to grow through acquisitions, which kind of is what got me started in, in mm-hmm. how you grow the business. The other thing we did was we automated everything. Mm-hmm. There was no, I remember the days when you used to open an account, they used to mail you the forms, you'd fill them out and mail them back. Mm-hmm. You know, My team and I automated the very first online application for E-Trade way back in the day. And it was controversial. It was like, can people really accept confirmations and statements online? Mm-hmm. And But it was the early stages of really trying to get people open an account, trade, and move on the process pretty quick. Yeah, well, it's early days of the internet. Like, am I really gonna put my credit card information in? So now am I gonna put like my more sensitive personal information in? Am I really gonna trade my stocks through the internet, right? To today, you know, you see people saying, am I really gonna put my, you know, my wealth into the internet magic money? And so it, it's uh, it's funny how the early days of all this stuff is always uh, somewhat correlated or, or, or um, you know, parallel. It, what goes around comes around, right? I mean, it's the same thing. That's what got me so interested in, in in magic money, mm-hmm. as you call it, is that, you know, it's the same thing all over again. Just a different, uh, a different, what I'll call asset class at this point in time, mm-hmm. although I think there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, but it's the same things that we put in place almost 20 years ago at this point. You're coming back in this, 
you know, for cryptocurrency. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, describe, so 2006, you roll out of E-Trade, you do the management buyout, and what'd you go do? Uh, we formed the company, it was the old E-Trade professional trading unit. Mm-hmm. It was direct market access trading. Uh, we built a whole- What does that mean? That means customers, our customers were all professional traders, day traders, active traders. The system we used allowed them to put executions or trades directly on the different markets. So they would put a trade either on Instanet or Arca or the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. There was multiple exchanges and ECNs way back in that day. We gave customers the ability to place those orders directly on the exchanges. So therefore DMA or direct market access. Mm -hmm. Uh, We grew that business from when I left, uh, when when I first started it and when I left E-Trade, we had about give or take 8 million of revenue and we did maybe 10,000 trades a day. Mm -hmm. Uh, Within four years we were at uh, somewhere around 85 million of revenue and 450,000 trades a day. We were the third largest broker dealer by trades per day by 2008, 2009. Wow. It was, it was a pretty great quick. ride. It was a great ride. It was, uh, you know, active traders engaged in the market. And we were talking earlier about the crash of 07 and 08. Uh, that's when the active traders made their most money. And when they were able to short the market, take positions uh, that actually made them money when the market crashed. And so we saw a ton of volume back then and, mm-hmm. and really grew a business. And it was it was really a lot of fun to do that. Although everything around us was, you know, was very sketchy. We thought it was just, you know, we were in high time at that point. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. And then um, how do you go from that to crypto? You know, I wound it's up- It's like one wild west to the next. <laughs> well, that's what drew me in actually, is uh, after I had left, Left Lightspeed. I did some other stuff learning about APIs. I mean, mm-hmm. that was my next step was what can I learn in the brokerage business mm-hmm. that we didn't have at E-Trade? Uh, and one of the things was we didn't have third-party APIs, APIs that people can look to, to connect to and grow their products with. Uh, mm-hmm. So I found the company. I worked with them for about 18 months, learned a lot about APIs, uh, then got introduced to my my uh, co-founders. And they were in a similar uh API business called Trade It. Two of my co-founders were in a company called Trade It, Gaspar DeDruzzi and Serge Kreiker. We got together, we got introduced by Jarrett Lillian, and we started thinking about ideas to do things. Then Philip Aton, who was an early investor in Uber, uh, came into the group, and then our most notable uh, co-founder, Oscar Salazar, and Oscar was the founding CTO of Uber. We were like, what can we do next? You know, what can we look at? And we started looking at crypto. One of the one or two of the guys were trading crypto and were like, hey, they're just to me, it looked very similar to what was going on in the late 90s, early 2000s. So how can I use that knowledge with the knowledge of the APIs of the group and Oscar's obvious knowledge on how to be disruptive into technology? How do we bring that into the mix and build something that customers really want? Mm -hmm. And that's what got me. I mean, I did a lot of research in the crypto, uh, didn't know that much about it. I was a late bloomer when it comes to that. and I was like, wow, we really can make something happen here. Mm-hmm. And, and so what was the original idea to go do? The original idea behind Voyager was to deliver a user experience for retail customers mm-hmm. that was second to none. That was what they were used to seeing in the marketplace, made them comfortable when they logged in uh, on their mobile apps. and But at the same time, uh, look across all the exchanges uh, across the globe and find the customer the best execution on that trade, mm-hmm. which many customers, we did some research and customers were, were saying, or potential customers were saying, you know, I hate to have an account at, at this exchange, this exchange, this, and I got to move my money and then I can't get the price. And we're like, hey, why don't we do all the work mm-hmm. for you guys and we'll build the execution system and have a best X router yep. to make that happen. And, and so really, you know, we were talking before that 
what you guys have done is you've built a retail interface, right? A, a user experience that overlays a routing system. That routing system hooks into 10 or so exchanges. And um, you said something to be really interesting that uh, you're seeking best execution, right? And I think a lot of times people hear best price. Describe the difference between best price and best execution and, and how you guys think about that. Yeah, that's a great point. I think uh, people who claim to say they're always going to get best price can't be telling the truth. And it's probably controversial to say that. But with the number of exchanges out there, uh, there are some exchanges that have the best sell price or the best buy price, but you can't reach them. Mm -hmm. A, you can't get to their APIs because they... they uh, they fall off. You can't connect all the time. You can't get your money out. So you can maybe execute there, but you can't. So we look at best execution as the best available price that we can get for that size of the order across the 10 markets that we're in, uh, that we feel are the markets that we can move money around and play treasury with to find the customer that best execution. Because mm -hmm. it's a near impossibility to get best price on every single order. Mm -hmm. We're always trying to do the best for the customer to give them that best execution. Got it. And so if I go in and I want to trade crypto on Voyager, basically I'm going to see this, you know, beautiful retail friendly uh, interface. I say, hey, I want to buy one Bitcoin, right? Um, when I say that, you're then on the back end, it sounds like you're going out to these 10 different exchanges and you're saying, trying to find whatever the best available price on those exchanges are. And then you're bringing that back to me and executing the transaction. That's pretty much how it works. All right, uh, what I miss. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, we have a price feed, so we're seeing all the depth of book across all the exchanges. Mm -hmm. So when you give us that order, we're going to give you a price right then and there. And then we're going to the market and we're trying to find, you know, trying to find better execution than what we could even price you at. Mm -hmm. And you're stopped at that price. You're getting that price. And if we find better execution, we give you price improvement as well. Mm -hmm. So because sometimes, you know, when you go across the exchanges, you might put in a one Bitcoin order, but, you know, Binance might only have 0 0.01 of a Bitcoin at that top price. Uh, Coinbase may have 0.02. So we have to aggregate and look and chop that order up. So, but we're guaranteeing you that price. And if we can beat it, we'll give you price improvement. So basically at the, when you talk about chopping this order up, at the end of the transaction, I end up with the one Bitcoin I wanted. You in the background kind of auto-magically went out and found different component, you know, different slices of a Bitcoin and put it all together for me and got me one Bitcoin at a blended price that is attractive. That's correct. That's how we do it. And you're guaranteed your execution at that price. When we got show it. it to you, you're guaranteed at that price. We're going out to beat it and then give you extra to your order. So if we can beat it, we'll give you that extra price. If somehow we can't beat it, we, we eat that loss. Got it. And then how do you guys make money? We make money because we, when we get you that best price, mm -hmm. you know, there is a little spread in there for us. We don't Got charge it. a commission. Yep. So we're always trying to beat that price for you. And then we'll give you some to you and then we'll take some. Got it. And, and as you're doing this, the focus is really on the retail side or on the institutional side, or how do you kind of, how, how do you cut the, let's say addressable market of people who would want best execution for crypto? Yeah, we, our business actually is for both the retail okay. and the institutional. We have a suite of APIs mm -hmm. that we also deliver those APIs to broker dealers, to trading platforms all across the globe. Uh, we're deep in uh, an integration with a true institutional trading platform mm -hmm. to offer that service to them as well and to their customers. We look at both. We think it's mm -hmm. the whole, you know, we could cover both markets. Our focus is, is in both. Uh, but we see the size of the market today where it sits as a bigger retail market as the institutional start to come into the into the mix. We look at institutions as let's try to find the businesses that want to connect to us. But we'll, you know, we, we will soon have hedge funds 
taking uh, using a platform to execute through our system. Got it. So retail's going through the mobile app, and then uh, the institutional customers are going through these APIs that you guys have created that help them basically layer into that best execution. That's correct. I have yet to see. Uh, an institutional hedge fund trader want to trade on his mobile app. <laughs> this is crypto. There's a lot wilder stuff I've seen. <laughs> oh, that's true. And I, you know, but it's uh, uh, from my days of, of running Lightspeed and you know our direct access desktop platform. I think most institutions, most hedge fund traders want more data yep. than what you'll see on that little. Uh, well, that, although you're right, they'll be running around wanting to make a trade. They're just going to make it. It doesn't really matter. They won't need the info. Uh, but we feel that we can grow our inst- institutional hedge fund business by partnering with the right trading platforms yep. to deliver the APIs to them and then doing all our routing. Because the other complexity to this is the treasury management behind mm-hmm. it. You know, being able to access on the exchanges is one thing. Mm-hmm. Then settling with cash and the coins on all those exchanges is another really important aspect, which is why we actually went out and bought uh, Ethos. Uh, All right, hold on. Before we get there, hold hold, hold on. So I want to walk through Voyager's uh, journey here a little bit because um, you guys have done a whole bunch of things that I think, one, either people don't realize or two, uh, they may not even understand why you did it, right? So uh, the two big ones are uh, after you started the company, you went public almost immediately. uh, And then two was you made an acquisition shortly thereafter, right? Or, Or maybe even simultaneously. So you can explain kind of, let's go through what did you do in terms of going public in the acquisition, and then we can talk about why you did these. Yeah, so the we started the company in, in give or take uh, December of 2017. Uh, we formed, uh, we filed with the TSX uh, in uh, the Venture Exchange in Toronto in February of 2018, mm-hmm. and we became public by February 2019. The process took a year. Yeah, uh, We were under the impression when we started it would be slightly quicker. Uh, I think all, the, the, the cannabis industry didn't help us only because of the fact that the venture exchange got so many applications, I believe, mm-hmm. that that became their hotspot and crypto mm-hmm. pricing was decreasing. So we became kind of like down the line and getting done. Why did we do it? Uh, you know, we thought that was a great way to bring clarity to the crypto industry, transparency to the crypto industry. We'll be undergoing audit. We Our year mm-hmm. ends June 30th. Mm-hmm. So we've engaged in a public accounting firm to audit our books so people can see that we have the assets we say we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the infrastructure we say we do. So we're going through a public audit that I'm not so sure any other crypto firm today that mm-hmm. takes retail customers is going through that same detail of public uh, visibility that mm-hmm. we do. We thought it was really important for the, not just for us, but we thought for the crypto industry in general. Got it. And, and so as part of uh, doing this, you then made the acquisition when? Yeah, February is a really busy month for us. Oh, oh so all this happened all February, this happened February 19th. February. Everything was Jesus. February 19th. It was, uh, we got the approval. We got traded on the Venture Exchange, uh, February 11th. Uh, February 13th, we launched our app. Um, I wanted to do it on Valentine's Day for no other reason, but it would have been cool to say that. Uh, and then February- Who stopped you? My chief marketing officer said, no, uh-huh. we don't want to do it on that day. Oh, that's um, fine. But He's uh, sitting in the room, by the way, smiling as, <laughs> as if he, he won that debate. So, all right, keep going. Debate. You know, that wasn't, that wasn't the one I was going to pick a fight on. So it was, <laughs> I let him have that one. Uh, I think he had plans on Valentine's Day. Me being the old man in the room and married for 25 years, I had no plans. I yeah. was done. Uh, you mean that you were going home to impress your wife of 25 years? <laughs> yes, exactly. He had more impressing to do, though. He's the newlywed. Uh and then by the end of the month, we had announced the acquisition of Ethos, which uh, has a few hundred thousand users on their universal wallet. But what intrigued me even more than the users in the wallet 
was their infrastructure. They have a, a product called Bedrock, which mm-hmm. is a suite of APIs, again, back to the API you know, theme, suite of APIs that sits on seven different protocols that allows us to, to move coins between the exchanges, between wallets, much quicker than we would have without that. Otherwise. So, yeah. So that was really intriguing to us to, to be able to get an asset like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually start building upon it now. Mm-hmm. And so really what you've been able to do here, I think it sounds like is you've got a wallet that also has the APIs that are hooked into the exchanges. And so you're able to use the uh, order routing and, and the execution on top of that wallet. So you can kind of provide a more vertically integrated solution. Is that That's correct. Direct? That's okay. correct. And you know we're trying to bring that, as we integrate that wallet more into the Voyager infrastructure, that'll allow our customers to move coins and trade quicker. Uh, without having to take the coins and put it onto the exchange and then go trade, we'll be able to make it a seamless, uh, a seamless experience for the for the customer. Plus, there's a lot of other things we can do on our own treasury side for us moving inventory coins between exchanges to make sure that we can never miss a trade for a customer. Got it. And so, what's the downside of going public and and doing all this kind of in this manner, right? Like, have you experienced any of those downsides and, or do you foresee any of them? You mean all the investors call me every day and realize (laughs) our stock down a penny or two pennies or whatever? Uh, That's the downside. But we're, you know, kind of like Galaxy. Galaxy Mm -hmm. went public a few months before us. We're such long-term believers in what we're doing Mm -hmm. and crypto. We don't really worry about the stock price. We know Mm -hmm. that'll take care of itself. And I met with the TSXV at the end of February as well, mm-hmm. after we were listed. And I was starting and asking them questions about how, you know, how should we act towards a stock? And they're like, don't look at it. Never mm-hmm. look at your stock. Mm-hmm. Just go execute your business. Because if you execute your business, the stock price takes care of itself. Yep. That's the way we look at it. But the flip side for me, being a guy who loves to do acquisitions and built, mm-hmm. you know, helped E-Trade do acquisitions. Lightspeed, we did eight acquisitions in eight years. It's a great currency to do acquisitions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used it for the Ethers transaction. Uh, we will use it for others. Mm-hmm. I think this industry is so compelling to us that we think there's so many good projects, but they're all a lot of them are running out of fonts. Mm-hmm. And we could use our currency to pick up really additional points and projects for us that will help us scale our business. Got it. And so as you continue to do this, is the goal to build out more of the infrastructure around order routing and, and uh, kind of the business you're already in? Or do you see this as more of kind of an ex, you know expanding out from the, the current business? It I don't comes, know what you're allowed to say as a public CEO. Tell me to shut up if well, I ask questions totally, No, no. Right. Anything I'm saying, this is public forum, so I'm good. All right, all right. I'm good. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I can't say, uh, right. which is pretty much nothing as long as it's public. <laughs> uh, the... Uh, we look at this as long term. We think that we want to expand internationally. We're look, we're actively looking at uh, ways to expand internationally. Uh, fiat gateways are the most important aspect mm-hmm. of that. How we get with banking partners to to effectuate that. I have a belief that you know every customer, every retail consumer, every institutional consumer should be able to trade every crypto pair to every crypto pair, crypto to every fiat pair, and then you go one step further. Why can't I use my crypto today, say Bitcoin, to go by Microsoft or Apple or something like, why not? I mean, mm-hmm. why? what's the holdback there? So we have a long-term vision that everything should be able to be sold out of your wallet or on an omnibus uh, structure from what we're trying to do. And that's the router and how we're trying to build it because it's all cross-functional. Got it. So really, you buy into this thesis that every, we'll call it stock bond currency and commodity, but just all these tr- financial instruments will be held in and traded out of one centralized location for a user or a fund. Is that 
accurate? I do. I okay. do believe that because I think first, I think we're going to start seeing more security, you know, security tokens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a necessity. Um, I think the holdback might be the cost to, to make a security token versus this traditional paperwork on doing mm-hmm. it. Uh, but I mean, there's there's a lot of inefficiencies, and those in the brokerage business won't call them inefficiencies. They'll call it how we make money. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's a lot of inefficiencies that should allow for more security tokens and for more tokenization of, of assets. I mean, mm-hmm. why are we still sitting today in a clearing world on the financial services at a trade plus two settlement date? Makes mm-hmm. no sense to me. Mm-hmm. So you do a trade on on any online broker that actually doesn't settle for two days. Why shouldn't it settle today? Mm-hmm. Why shouldn't it be immediate settlement? The blockchain mm-hmm. has the ability to settle these trades immediately mm-hmm. uh, and use your funds immediately. You know, these inefficient, what I call inefficiencies, are going to go away over time. I don't know how long it's going to take, but it's going to take time. Yeah. And, and so what do you think is necessary for those inefficiencies to go away? Like what, are, like what are the one or two milestones that you think are most important? And then we'll be sitting here saying, oh, you know, that removed a huge uh, kind of hurdle out of the the or a huge inefficiency. I think it's still user adoption. I think we've got to get more and more people to mm-hmm. buy their first, you know, on ramp to their first Bitcoin or e- Ethereum or something uh, or some other coin. They just mm-hmm. need we need to get them comfortable with that so that they see, you know, it's it's safe, uh, it's easy to do, and more adoption will then start forcing more of the securitization of tokens mm-hmm. uh, and securitization of assets to be able to, to go that route. But I think we got to get people in this more yeah. uh, first. It, it's interesting because um, there's a, a product, um, I'm probably going to screw it up, but it's XDAI, XDAI, I think, .io. I, I may have that wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's the right one. And it's essentially like a burner wallet, right? So what you can do is I can tell you right now, go to XDAI.io. You pull it up on your phone. I pull it up on my phone. If I have crypto preloaded, I can immediately send you uh, this crypto onto your device. You didn't have any account. You didn't sign up. You didn't do anything. And so it's a great way for, let's say I go meet an institutional investor. I say, hey, pull out your phone, go to your browser, immediately I can send you something and they don't even know what happened, right? All they see is they had zero balance. Now they have $1 and they're looking at me like, what the hell was that? (laughs) Right. And so you've got their attention. Now they'll listen. Right. And so I always think of like that type of interaction. It would be really, really cool if there was a way to do that with Bitcoin. Right. Or to do it with some other, um, you know, cryptocurrencies and, and start to show, uh, you know, I always think of it as like 30 seconds or less. How do I show you how crypto works? Right. And if I can do that, just walking up to you on the street or in, in a meeting, I, I do think that really starts to demystify and, and break the barriers down because people are paying attention. They want to learn. Right. Like what, what just explain to me how that worked. Right. And, and that's where you get some some movement on their thoughts. I, I agree with you. I think that's that'll be one way to get that adoption. I think. Most people do want to learn and they're not blind to the fact that there's this Bitcoin and blockchain around them. And it's going to, I think everything you read about it, forget the cryptocurrencies themselves, but the the technology behind it is going to change the way we operate across so many different ways. And people get that. They're just still worried. Like, you know, we always found this in the, in the online brokerage space, especially early on. How do you get someone to to give us their dollars? Mm-hmm. Because it goes from a bank where they, they know a bank. They can go down to the corner and see it and touch it and feel it. Now it's being moved to something like, I can't feel it anymore. Well, where is it? It just goes, yep. you know, to quote my dad, like, it just went into space. Mm-hmm. I mean, where'd it go? And we have to get people to understand that it's not space. It's actually secure somewhere. And they'll 
it'll start the adoption rolling. Yeah. I always joke and I say, look, you go and you buy Apple stock. You ever touch an Apple stock certificate, right? <laughs> no, right? Now, they have the beauty of they can walk into the Apple store, right? So, so, th- so they're comfortable with the kind of the brand of the business that they're buying, but the actual financial instrument is very similar to Bitcoin. They don't actually touch it. It's ones and zeros on a screen, right? Same thing with uh, with these digital assets. I think the big difference is just what is the underlying value, right? Or yep. the kind of that fair value in their mind and, and how tangible is that? Well, and I think if you dig into the financial services even further, when it comes, you buy a hundred shares of Apple and it's quite a bit of money these days. Uh, you know, it's not really held in your name by mm-hmm. the, by you buy it at your online broker. They're not holding it in your name. It's on a ledger that says, you know, Joe Smith now has 100 shares of Apple. It's in the back end. It's being held by DTC. It's in electronic form and it's being in street name, meaning yep. it's being held by the broker dealer's name. Mm-hmm. So you don't actually even know, you don't own a particular certificate with it. It's just, and no different than what we're dealing with in, in mm-hmm. blockchain and Bitcoin mm-hmm. is that things are in ledger form. But actually I would argue that within the blockchain world in Bitcoin, you actually have an address if, you know, on that. So mm-hmm. this is actually so much better mm-hmm. than the way the, the financial services- It's less and risk. It's less risk. Yeah, you have You're, much less risk doing it this way than you do in the centralized model. People don't realize that in holding your security in street name, yes, there's capital requirements and all that of broker dealers and banks. But in when, it, when your certificate is held by an online broker or any broker, you know, you're subject to the, the capital of that broker dealer. If they suddenly something happened to them, you're gonna, you know, yes, there's SIPIC and there's certain levels of insurance. But if you hold too much in excess SIPIC, you're not, you might not get anything. Mm-hmm. So I think not to, you know, that to panic anyone or it, but those that know how it actually works realize that crypto and blockchain are far more safe than yeah. than the financial services world. Got it. Has there been a situation where one of them has really blown up in this kind of street name mechanism? You could actually go back to probably around 2008, 2009 for people that remember, uh, there used to be a clearing firm called Penson. 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 Okay. P-E-N-S-O-N. Okay. Uh, Never heard of them. Nearly were, they were the clearing firm for uh, Lightspeed. They were clearing firm for uh, probably Thinkorswim back then mm-hmm. before they sold. They were the clearing firm for probably five or six of the biggest brokerage firms out there. Wow. They had capital problems. They were going out of business. And the Peak Six guys out of Chicago wound up buying them mm-hmm. and saved the firm mm-hmm. and saved, you know, and obviously all the assets. But it was literally days away from the SEC or SIPC coming in there and having to do a a, a liquidation of Penson mm-hmm. uh, because they had run their capital so long and they were their expenses that way and they, were, they had problems. So people don't realize that, but those of us who knew what was going on, mm-hmm. you know, we knew there was, you know, Peak Six was coming in to save the day, uh, which became Options House and all that stuff. Uh, but that's, you're subject to that mm-hmm. in the financial services. So what, yes, it what did would happen. Have, what would have happened to people who were holding equities in that scenario, right? So if their assets were at risk, uh, they've recouped their money, is there Some, insurance? Okay. There's SIPC insurance and okay. there's levels of SIPC insurance. Uh, you know, each account's held, I think you're insured for up to $500,000. Got know, some So there's some protection, some protection, but depending on who you are and, and how kind how of much deep you, have, you yeah. are, you, you actually could be in trouble in, in some situation. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's pretty crazy. Um, I joke and say that 
that uh, the only thing that Americans know less about uh, the financial market structure is actually just personal finance. Yeah. <laughs> right. So like we, we definitely don't know anything about market structure, but we know even less about personal finance. And both of those are bad situations for Americans to be in. Right? Well, think about the bank situation we had, right? When when WAMU went out, you know, when and they had to be saved. I remember running around and being like telling people, hey, split your, you know, the, the FDIC insurance was only maybe 250 for people. So mm-hmm. it was like, hey, you should, you know, if you have more than 250,000 with a bank, you should go open a new bank account mm-hmm. and just, you know, move your risk around. Why would you leave it there? Mm-hmm. We went through that. People mm-hmm. forget that we did go through mm-hmm. these things way back when in a very uh, regulated environment yep. with banks and brokers. Mm-hmm. You know, time goes on, you know, the memories of that pass, but it happened. It was mm-hmm. there. We had that banking crisis of 07, 08. And mm-hmm. I think that's effectively where the beginning of crypto came, right? The yep. distrust of of the government and the banks. And, you know, we're starting to see that. And I think that's why I believe where I started this off was that you should be able to buy everything out of Bitcoin at some point. I yeah. mean, it's still the safest thing to do. Yeah. I mean, I, I think of it a lot in, uh, and I've talked about it on the podcast of like people aged, I'll call it 25 to 35, right? And give me a little bit of on either side of that. Uh, they were old enough to know what was going on with the financial crisis, but not old enough to actually have the, enough assets personally to like really be affected by it. So they saw what were these institutions that their parents could have never imagined could be in trouble, right? Uh, get bailed out and then go through all this situation and they could grow up. And part of it is distrust. Like I actually don't trust you people. And then the other part of it is uh, just now they understand that there is the ability to validate. So it's not even like, I don't care if I trust you or not, I want to validate, right? And, and so I think that it, it's a really kind of perfect storm that we're seeing with crypto, Bitcoin, um, you know, becoming more popular. It's just those people are getting older. They have more assets now, right? And kind of here we go. Well, and that's why I hearken back to owning a wallet and doing the ethos. It's like self cut more and more people want to hold that. I mean, mm-hmm. you buy Bitcoin, I'm going to hold it. It's my asset. I'm not giving it to you. I'm going to hold it. Uh, and then eventually if I want to lend it or if I want to, you know, do something and earn some interest on that, I'm going to make that decision. I'm not giving it to you as the bank mm-hmm. to do that because we could get in another situation. That's yep. my asset. I'm holding it. Absolutely. And that's, that's again, bringing it all back to why Bitcoin to securities and all it makes sense because I'll hold my asset. I'm not going to give it to you and let you make all this extra money on it. If I want to make money on it, I'll lend it out. Why am I giving it to someone else? If uh, if I go down, I want to go down because of my decisions. <laughs> right? I mean, that's the way we all are. It's like, uh, I'm not betting on someone else. I always rather bet on myself than someone else. Absolutely. Uh, before I wrap up, I usually do a rapid fire questions. Uh, most important company in crypto. Oh, he's oh, cheated. He I came did. with notes. I did. I had to. Oh my God. To. He came most, with most, notes. I did. I had to. Uh, I wasn't going to get caught with my pants down. Because uh, I didn't, want, right, I didn't want anyone in my shop being like, I'm, I'm already changing my questions up because he's got questions. He's got notes here. I knew here. you would do that. Uh, most important company. I don't think we've seen it yet, actually, to be honest with you. You don't think we've seen the most important company nope. in crypto? No. Nope. All right. If you had to pick one right now, what do you th- what do you think it would be? Can't say yourself. I'll say Ethos because we haven't uh, – it's not the way <laughs> <No. laughs> All right. Uh, look, all right. No, I, I, I actually think uh, – and I know it's been said before, but I think Binance and what they've done for the industry is, is probably still the most important in crypto. I think we all rely on them – to be solvent and to you know be a core component of the system and the adoption yeah. of crypto, it's uh, it is incredible what CZ and team has done. So we'll, uh, we'll we'll see if they can continue. Um, what is the one regulation that you would change or improve if you could? Oh, that's easy. Uh, 
and my Steve's going to laugh when I say this. I hate money transfer licenses. I can't stand them. This has become a much more popular answer to this question. Like in the last six months, people just are railing against these. You know, when you're a broker dealer and you want to get registered in all 50 states, Mm -hmm. you know, it's easy. Check boxes and you're done literally within a month. You can Mm -hmm. answer all their questions. To get a money transfer license. You have to go state by state, right? State by state. Each one is different. Each one's requirements are different. Uh, it takes legal dollars to do. So there's a barrier. I mean, from a barrier to entry, I don't mind mm-hmm. it because we're yep. well capitalized to do that. But it's it costs legal dollars. You need certy bonds for every one of them, mm-hmm. and everything. It just takes time. No, you know, no states are working super quick to do that. You mm-hmm. know, you throw the MTLs on top of you know trying to then get the licenses in in states like New York and the bit license. You're just adding a lot of complexity to something that. I'm not so sure, you know, we need, but we should definitely look at. Absolutely. Makes uh, makes sense. What uh, What's your most controversial thought in crypto? What do you believe that everyone else will disagree with you on? You know, uh, we're a broker, right? So when I've seen all this pushback on BSV mm-hmm. and BSV has been, you know, people hold You're that You're about Bitcoin SV. Yeah. Right? People, you know, people hold that asset on exchanges that now say you can't trade it. I shake my head and I'm like, wait a second, you sold it to them. You're not giving somebody the avenue to get out of that, even mm-hmm. on fractions of the dollar, mm-hmm. uh, and forgetting about the theoretical or any about. It's like that's where we came. We're like, oh, why would you do that? You know, mm-hmm. you have an obligation, a, funding, a, a fiduciary obligation to your customer that you give them a way to, to at least close out their position and mm-hmm. move on to another day. So I think I, that's I think, controversial. I, I think a lot. Uh, so I don't think that that is, in my opinion. Uh, Trapping a customer intentionally, I don't think is is don't. looked at positively by many people. Maybe there are some people who think that's okay, but but I don't think that that would be uh, a common opinion, right? It's okay to trap your customer. Uh, I think what most of the exchanges have done, and and uh, I tweeted and said, hey, take these things down, right? Was uh, they gave them a time period, right? So I said, hey, you know, two weeks from now we're going to delist this thing, etc. Um, you could definitely argue, right? I think a, a fair criticism of that approach would be they didn't give enough time, they didn't right. do enough to alert them, right? I think all of that is fair criticism. Um, to me, the the one part of that whole situation uh, that just made me laugh was, you know, people said, uh, basically were acting as if it was somebody's God-given right to be able to trade any asset they possibly could on any exchange. And I kept saying, well, what about the right to the private business to say, we're not going to support something, right? By the way, if it's a good asset, other people will support it. And I think what you actually saw was this like bifurcation of exchanges that some said, we're going to let you trade anything that we possibly have forever. We're never going to delist anything. And others took a position. And it's really interesting to see the response because some people like that and some people don't. No, it's perfect. It was It's controversial, right? I yep. mean, I think, I think maybe having been in the, the online brokerage space for so long, uh, I would probably have given people like, hey, if you own it, you know, you you've either got to move it somewhere, or mm-hmm. we'll move it for you, or work with a partner that will yep, take yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I think there was almost more like, handholding. Yeah, like okay, either you could liquidate it here, or we'll help you put it somewhere yep. where you can liquidate it or hold it, where somebody's more willing, or put it into a wallet. Figure out a different way than just it's trapped there. Yep. Uh, just make it a little bit more accessible yeah. for people to do it. I, I think that that's a fair position to yeah. take, right? And I don't know if people think that's controversial, tweet it. That's fine. <laughs> uh, what uh, What do you think the most important book is that you've ever read? Uh, pretty simple it's old school it's uh, uh jim collins good to be great oh, and yeah, I, yeah. I love that book uh, yep. i made my management team at lightspeed read that book my management team at at voyager get prepared uh you have to read the book uh the beauty of it is is the concept of the boss everybody getting on the boss mm. 
getting in the right seats and all going in the right direction. Every startup company needs that. Uh, and every company needs that. Forget startup. Everybody needs the right people in the right seats to move forward. So it's yep. something I've had with me forever. Yep. I think I think uh, it is one it's of the greats be, because it is one of the greats, right? Yep. Uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, all right. Aliens. I know you came prepared for the alien question. Oh, this is believer, yeah. non-believer. I am a non-believer. Believe it or not. Why? I'm well, how and, do you come the, in here and say that? <laughs> although, uh, although some of the people I've met over the last couple of years yeah. and even longer, yeah, they might be aliens. They might be men in black all over again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of my favorite movies, but uh, I don't know. I just, you know, I'm just a non... You're a non-believer until you meet one. Yeah, which I probably okay. met some already. Yeah, well, that's definitely possible. Um, all right, because you came prepared, now I'm going to screw you up. Yeah, good. Uh, how long would you dunk Oreos in milk? This is the psychopath test. Oh, almost until they fall apart. Oh, my God. Oh, That's the fall. second worst answer we've ever oh, had. Like, the worst answer was Juan Hernandez from Open Finance, <laughs> who said that you leave the Oreos in the milk until it becomes soggy, and then you eat them like cereal. The second worst is you dunk them until they almost fall apart. Until they're almost done. You know, no, it's like it's like a five to seven second oh, thing. No, I love I'm drenched in milk. Oh, completely my. drenched. All right. So the, the reason why I call it the psychopath test is because people who almost drench them in milk are psychopaths. Psychopath. <laughs> I might be. I might be the alien. <laughs> Perfect. All right. What uh, what one question do you have for me to finish this out? You know, who was the most influential person for you getting into crypto? Ooh, most influential person for me getting into crypto. Uh, this kid, uh, JP Barrick. Um, he, I met him when he was in high school, uh, and then I met him again. Like we like reconnected when he was in college. Uh, he was just persistent. Like you got <laughs> to pay attention. Um, and I had heard of Bitcoin when I worked at Facebook. Uh, didn't pay attention. I told story a million times. Um, but he really was like, "Hey, man! Like you gotta pay attention to this." Uh, and the thing he did that probably was better, th- I couldn't have realized was so positive was he did it through mining. So he was really into mining and he was like, you should get into mining, you should get into mining. Um, and uh, whether he was a good salesman or I was stupid, I took some money <laughs> and I bought some rigs and and, and got to work there. Uh, and, um, and it just happened to be at the right time and then price increased and I was hooked and like, and it's just, you look back and you're like, it, the whole thing is so serendipitous in terms of uh, not only being interested in the technology, but then also the way you get in and how it holds your attention. Um, and then you look like in reverse and, or historically, and uh, my partner, Jason Williams and I, we'd actually made a bunch of investments that are in and around FinTech and anti-money laundering and like all these things that are really prevalent in crypto, they just weren't based on blockchain. They weren't cryptographically secure, right? And like now those founders are talking to us like, hey, like my anti-money laundering software that works for fiat actually works better in crypto because everything's so transparent. Like you think I should go into crypto? And so it's pretty funny to just see how like, you know, and this is the story of a lot of people, right? It's like so many different life uh, interests and experiences and everything just kind of intersected this one thing and you're like it's money it's technology it's psychology it's like all of this stuff together dude I want to work on this forever right like this like this is so much fun I wish I had my I wish I had a friend like your guy because I <laughs> took me too late I missed I missed a good chunk of the run up uh, it's all right. Don't worry. Know, the next one will be it's bigger. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> I, I don't know uh, if uh, anyone is listening. This is not financial advice, but uh, that, that's what uh, <laughs> that's what we're betting on. <laughs> um, so we'll see. But listen, I, I really appreciate you uh, you taking time to do this. I think what you guys are doing is super cool, and uh, we'll have to do it again in the future. Great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
Monarch is building the future for those interested in one wallet that consolidates the best services and functionality into a simple and easy to use application. The Monarch app and wallet will empower users to control all aspects of their financial kingdom from the palm of their hand. You may have heard the phrase, not your keys, not your crypto. With Monarch, you own your keys and your seed phrase, meaning you own your own crypto. With Monarch, you can store, receive, send, swap, buy, sell, and earn interest on your crypto. You can track your portfolio in the news, and you can check the market cap daily. They're constantly adding new services and updates, and you can learn more today by visiting monarchwallet.com pomp. Again, that's monarchwallet.com pomp, or you can download the wallet for free today from Apple or Google. Hey everyone, Pomp here. If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.